Hey, everybody. First, I just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year. I'm really excited to share the writers lined up for 2024 and to travel this year together, whatever it may bring. We're going to kick off the new year with a serious blast from the past with recording from the very first Tin House Writers Workshop in 2003, just over 20 years ago now. Since then, the workshop has really grown and blossomed. What began as an annual summer workshop on the Reed College campus in Portland, Oregon, and I will say as an aside that they mention in this episode the stoners walking behind the podium, or when Dennis Johnson mentions taking a pee break to pee in the lake, the setting of these readings is this gorgeous outdoor amphitheater surrounded by trees looking down upon Reed Canyon and the lake. The people reading are facing away from the canyon up toward the audience, and there is a small trail that runs behind the podium along the top of the canyon, which is provided some comedy over the years as unsuspecting hikers or joggers, stoned or not, find themselves suddenly before a large amassed crowd looking down upon them. But what began as an annual summer workshop back in 2003 continues, but there is now a winter workshop as well, an autumn workshop, various one-month residencies and the studio apartment next to the Tin House in Portland for writers working on full-length manuscripts, summer general residencies, some for debut writers or debut writers over the age of 40 or writers who have never before attended a residency or for writers who are parents or for writers who are trans. And in the last several years, there's been an explosion in online craft intensives, for instance, The ones offered just in the next month include classes on personal essay and the critical essay, writing extreme experiences, generative revision, and contemporizing ancestral stories. So if you're curious about any of these things, the various seasonal writing workshops, the residencies, or all of these craft intensives, you can find out about all of them at tinhouse.com slash workshop. But to return to where it all began, the summer of 2003, Tin House really began their workshops in those early years with a bang, with such iconic writers that they brought out, from Mark Strand to James Salter to today's guest, novelist, poet, playwright, and screenwriter Dennis Johnson, who was part of the workshop in both 2003 and 2004. Today's episode is a three-part event. We begin, after an introduction by the writer Chris Offit, with a remarkable reading from Dennis, from his novella, Train Dreams. And then Dennis is interviewed by Chris and takes questions, a conversation that is full of some unforgettable explorations of a writer's process, methodology, and philosophy on craft. And I should mention that this second part required some creative editing on my part, both because the people asking the questions from the audience are not mic'd, and also because they haven't given consent to be part of this recording 
Fortunately, Dennis repeats the questions. So you'll be hearing Dennis repeating the questions and then answering them, but without the original questioner asking the question. And likewise, right as they are about to ask questions, Dennis proposes some to the audience himself, which we won't hear the answers to, but I left his questions in because they're really great and really funny. As if that isn't enough, this mesmerizing reading and this very substantive interview and Q&A. There is a part three as well. After a cigarette break, which Dennis says should be six minutes in length, enough time to smoke one cigarette, and to honor this, I do insert a little music during that break, not six minutes worth, so if you actually want to smoke a cigarette at Dennis's speed, you'll need to pause the recording. But after this cigarette break slash musical interlude, Chris Offit and Dennis Johnson perform the first act of Johnson's play, Psychos Never Dream, with stage directions read by Charles D'Ambrosio. I realize it's absurd, if you know Dennis Johnson's work, to talk about trigger warnings, but if having them is useful to you, I, I would imagine this final third should have them all, really. Um, as we enter the demented, amoral psyches of Floyd and Critter, there are no footholds of likability or any comforts, moral or otherwise, of distance or any meaning-making outside of their minds. But this isn't just the story of two sometimes comically and sometimes horrifyingly and sometimes comically and horrifyingly degenerate misfits, but also, I think, a play about the way the American past trickles through everything these two men think and believe, a past still alive and kicking from an open grave today, questions of freedom and property, of rights and borders and land, of the insatiable greed of treasure and treasure hunting, and of who is considered almost, but not quite human. As Critter says at one point in this play, the evil of you just keeps percolating down and through the universe to hell. Evil contamination percolation. And we are not spared that percolation. As Dennis Johnson himself says about his own work, what I write about is the dilemma of living in a fallen world and asking why it is like this if there's supposed to be a God. Here's today's episode of Tin House Live from 2003 with none other than Dennis Johnson. Thanks a lot for coming, everybody. Thanks, Lee. 
etc. Thanks, Wynn. Thanks, Reed. Thanks, the stoners who walk along behind. It's coming up. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Um, I uh, had nothing planned to introduce Dennis simply because I think everyone here probably knows that he's um, one of uh, America's greatest uh, treasures as writers, distinguishing himself in all the forms. Um, and after having exhausted them, he's moved on to plays. He's now the playwright in residence at two places. Um, I met Dennis 10 years ago, uh, and he was the first. I, I had never known another. I'd never met a writer until I was 30, and then they were either teachers or my fellow students in a writing program, including Charlie. So Dennis was the first sort of writer who took enough pity to befriend me at the time. Um, and then subsequently, after I published two books, my literary status resided upon the fact that I actually knew Dennis Johnson. Um, and that's why I was invited here uh, this week. <laughs> Dennis is going to read from his new novelina, uh, another form he's working on. Thank you, Dennis. Dennis Johnson. I, I do remember meeting Chris, and I said, so what are you doing now? And he said, I'm waiting for my fame. Because he'd, he'd gotten out of graduate school, I guess. Then he sat around and waited. Actually, in my mind, the evening is already becoming increasingly disorganized, but we did have a plan. Uh, the idea is that I will read a little bit of this prose fiction, then we're going to have a sort of an interview. Chris is going to interview me or I'm going to interview him for a short time. Then maybe we'll take a, a pee break. And uh, you don't have to go to the bathroom because you can just go right in the pond back there. And we'll get ourselves set up. And then uh, Charlie D'Ambrosio and Chris and I will read the first act. Or it's actually a long scene from uh, this play. We aren't going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. But it, it happens, I, I really didn't plan it out this way, but uh, I realize now that the, the little section of the novella that I'm going to read actually takes place in a, on exactly the same road in North Idaho that the scene from the play takes place on. And, uh, but they're separated by the, this little bit of the novella I'm going to read takes place in like 1920, somewhere in there, in the 1920s. And the, the play takes place in our era. I think we'll get an idea as to how the people have evolved a little bit, um, at least in my estimation, between the two eras. The novella is called uh, Train Dreams. And it's just really the story of one man's life, Robert uh, Grenier, who uh, lives in the very north part of North Idaho, uh, and it covers his existence between the age, between the uh, years 1897 and 1963. And this part of it just concerns a job he has for a while. As a young man, he gets married, and then his he loses his wife and baby daughter in a fire in their home, which is out in the woods in North Idaho. And he kind of rattles around for a while, but then eventually gets a chance to uh, rent a horse and a wagon on a long-term basis. And this little section of the uh, story just concerns uh, his occupation as a kind of a freighter. And there may be a couple of references in here to parts of the, of the story uh, that aren't quite clear, but I think 
I don't need to explain them. I think that this little section is clear enough. For the rest of the fall, and even a ways into winter, Grainer leased the pair and wagon from the Pinkhams, boarding the mares with their owners, and kept himself busy as a freighter of sorts. Most of his jobs took him east and west along Highway 2, among the small communities there that had no close access to the railways. Some of these errands took him down along the Kootenai River, and traveling beside it always brought into his mind the image of William Coswell Haley, the dying boomer. Rather than wearing away, Grenier's regret at not having helped the man, I'm aware I, I haven't yet decided how I pronounce this guy's name. <laughs> it's spelled like uh, Mount Rainier uh, with a G on the front of it. Um, but I've always pronounced Mount Rainier as Mount Rainier, but Rainier Beer is Rainier Beer. So I'm a little confused. And I, I'll just, you know, go back and forth, I think. Some of these errands took him down along the Kootenai River, and traveling beside it always brought into his mind the image of William Coswell Haley, who, that's another part of the story, I'm not even going to explain it, the dying boomer. Rather than wearing away, Grenier's regret at not having helped the man had grown much keener as the years had passed. Sometimes he thought also of the Chinese railroad hand he'd almost helped to kill. The thought paralyzed his heart. He was certain the man had taken his revenge by calling down a curse that had incinerated Kate and Gladys. He believed the punishment was too great. But the hauling itself was better work than any he'd undertaken, a ticket to a kind of show, to an entertainment comprised of the follies and endeavors of his neighbors. Grenier was having the time of his life. He contracted with the Pinkhams to buy the horses and wagon in installments for $300. By the time he'd made this decision, the region had seen over a foot of snow, but he continued a couple more weeks in the freight business. It didn't seem a particularly bad winter down below, but the higher country had frozen through, and one of Grenier's last jobs was to get up the Yak River Road to the saloon at the logging village of Sylvanite, in the hills above which a lone prospector had blown himself up in his shack while trying to thaw out frozen dynamite on his stove. That actually happened. Some of this I got from old newspaper articles, and uh, there actually was a guy who blew himself up in his shack because, and this was not an uncommon practice, apparently. People had, were not as respectful of dynamite as we are nowadays. And, it, you know, he kept it out in the shed, and it was frozen, so he just put it on the stove, and it blew up. The man lay out on the bar top, alive and talking, sipping free whiskey and praising his dog. His dogs going for help had saved him. For half a day, the animal had made such a nuisance of himself around the saloon that one of the patrons had finally noosed him and dragged him home and found his master extensively lacerated and raving from exposure in what remained of his shack. Much that was astonishing was told of the dogs in the panhandle and along the Kootenai River, tales of rescues, tricks, feats of super-canine intelligence, and human-like understanding. As his last job for that year, Grenier agreed to transport a man from Meadow Creek to Bonner's who had actually been shot by his own dog. The dog-shot man was a bare acquaintance of Grenier's, a surveyor for Spokane International who came and went in the area named of Peterson, originally from Virginia. Peterson's boss and comrades might have put him on the train into town the next morning if they'd wanted, but they thought he might perish before then, so Grenier hauled him down the Moye River Road, wrapped in a blanket and half sitting up on a load of half a dozen sacks of wood chips, bagged up just to make him comfortable. Are you feeling like you need anything, Grenier said at the start. 
Grenier thought Peterson had gone to sleep, or worse. But in a minute, the victim answered, Nope, I'm perfect. A long thaw had come earlier in the month. The snow was melted out of the ruts. Bare earth showed off in the woods. But now again, the weather was freezing, and Grenier hoped he wouldn't end up bringing in a corpse dead of the cold. For the first few miles, he didn't talk much to his passenger. Because Peterson had a dented head and a crazy eye, the result of some mishap in his youth, and he was hard to look at. Grenier steeled himself to glance once in a while in the man's direction just to be sure he was alive. As the sun left the valley, Peterson's crazy eye and then his entire face became invisible. If he died now, Grenier probably wouldn't know it until they came into the light of the two gas lamps either side of the doctor's house. After they'd moved along for nearly an hour without conversation, listening only to the creaking of the wagon and the sound of the nearby river and the clop of the mares, it grew dark. Grenier disliked the shadows, the spindly silhouettes of birch trees and the clouds strung around the yellow half-moon. It all seemed designed to frighten the child in him. Sir, are you dead? he asked Peterson. Who, me? Nope, alive, said Peterson. Well, I was wondering, do you feel as if you might go on? You mean as if I might die? Yes, sir, Grenier said. Nope, ain't going to die tonight. That's good. Even better for me, I'd say. Grenier now felt they'd chatted sufficiently that he might raise a matter of some curiosity to him. Mrs. Stout, your boss's wife there, she said your dog shot you. Well, she's a very upright lady, to my way of knowing, anyways. Yes, I have the same impression of her right around, Grenier said, and she said your dog shot you. Peterson was silent a minute. In a bit, he coughed and said, Do you feel a little warm patch in the air, as if maybe last week's warm weather turned around and might be coming back on us? Not as such to me, Grenier said, just holding the warm of the day the way it does before you get around this ridge. They continued along under the rising moon. Anyway, Grenier said. Peterson didn't respond, might not have heard. Did your dog really shoot you? Yes, he did. My own dog shot me with my own gun. Ouch, Peterson said, shifting himself gently. Can you take your team a little more gradual over these ruts, mister? I don't mind, Grenier said, but you've got to get your medical attention or anything could happen to you. All right, go at it like the Pony Express then, if you want. I don't see how a dog shoots a gun. Well, he did. Did he use a rifle? It weren't a cannon. It weren't a pistol. It were a rifle. Well, that's pretty mysterious, Mr. Peterson. How did that happen? It was self-defense. <laughs> Grenier waited. A full minute passed, but Peterson stayed silent. That just tears it then, Grenier said, quite agitated. I'm pulling this team up, and you can walk from here if you want to beat around and around the bush. I'm taking you to town with a hole in you, and I ask a simple question about how your dog shot you, and you have to play like a bunkhouse louder don't know the answer. All right, Peterson laughed, then groaned with the pain it caused him. My dog shot me in self-defense. I went to shoot him at first because of what Kootenai Bob, the Indian, said about him, and he slipped the rope. I had him tied for the business we were about to do. Peterson coughed and went quiet a few seconds. I ain't stalling you now. I just got to get over the herd a little bit. All right, but why did you have Kootenai Bob tied up? And what has Kootenai Bob got to do with this anyways? Not Kootenai Bob. I had the dog tied up. 
Kootenai Bob were nowhere near this scene I'm relating. He was before. But the dog, I say. And say I also the dog. He's the one I ties. He's the one slips the rope, and I couldn't get near him. He'd just back off a step for every step I took in his direction. He knew I had his end in mind, which I decided to do on account of what Kootenai Bob said about him. The dog knew things because of what happened to him, which is what Kootenai Bob the Indian told me about him. That animal all of a sudden knew things. So I swung the rifle by the barrel and butt-ended that old pup to stop his sass, and wham! I'm sitting on my very own butt-end pretty quick. Then I'm laying back, and the sky is traveling away from me in the wrong direction. Mr. Grenier, I'd been shot. Right here. Peterson pointed to the bandages around his left shoulder and chest. By my own dog. Peterson continued. I believe he did it, because he'd been confabulating with that wolf girl person. If she is a person... Or I don't know. A creature is what you can call her if ever she was created. But there are some creatures on this earth that God didn't create. Confabulating? Yes, I let that dog in the house one night last summer because he got so yappy and wouldn't quit. I wanted him right by me where I could beat him with a kindling should he irritate me one more time. Well, next morning he got up the wall and out through the window like a bear clawing up a tree and he started working that porch back and forth. Then he started working that yard back and forth, back and forth, and off he goes and down to the woods, and I didn't see him for 13 days. All right, all right. Kootenai Bob stopped by the place one day a while after that. You know him? His name is Bobcat such and such, Bobcat Ada Mountain, or one of those rooty toot Indian names. He wants to beg you for a little money, wants a pinch of snuff, a little drink of water, stops around twice in every season or so. Tells me, you can guess what, tells me the wolf girl has been spotted around. I showed him my dog and says, this animal was gone 13 days and come back just about wild and hardly knew me. Bob looks him in the face, getting down very close, you see, and says, I am goddamned if you hadn't better shoot this dog. I can see that girl's picture in the back of this dog's eyes. This dog has been with the wolves, Mr. Peterson. Yes, you better shoot this dog before you get a full moon again, or he'll call that wolf girl person right into your home, and you'll be meat for wolves, and your blood will be her drink like whiskey. Do you think I was scared? Well, I was. She'll be blood drunk and running along the roads talking in your own voice, Mr. Peterson, is what he says to me. In your own voice, she'll go to the window of every person you did a dirty to and tell them what you did. Well, I know about the girl. That wolf girl was first seen many years back leading a pack. Stout's cousin visiting from Seattle last Christmas saw her, and he said she had a bloody mess hanging down between her legs. A bloody mess, Grenier said, terrified in his soul. Don't ask me what it was. A bloody mess is all. But Bob the Kootenai feller said some of them want to believe it was the afterbirth of some part of a wolf child torn out of her womb. You know they believe in Christ. What? Who? The Kootenais. In Christ and angels, devils, and creatures God didn't create like half-wolves. They believe just about anything funny or witchy or religious they hear about. The Kootenais call animals to be people. Coyote person, bear person, and such a way of talking. Grenier watched the darkness on the road ahead, afraid of seeing the wolf girl. Dear God, he said, I don't know where I'll get the strength to take this road at night anymore. And what do you think? I can't sleep through the night myself, Peterson said. God will give me strength, I guess. Peterson snorted. This wolf girl is a creature God didn't create. 
She was made out of wolves and a man of unnatural desires. Did you ever get with some boys and jigger yourselves a cow? What? When you was a boy, did you ever get on a stump and love a cow? They all did it over where I'm from. It's not unnatural down around that way. Now, this is curious. I was not aware of this. I just didn't remember this part about the cow. We are not actually done with this subject. We're done with it for this story, but it's going to come up later tonight. I think you should hang around. And when we read the play, we're going to return to this very subject. Are you saying you could make a baby with a cow or make a baby with a wolf? You, me, a person? Peterson's voice sounded wet from fear and passion. I'm saying it gets dark and the moon gets full and there's creatures God did not create. He made a strangling sound. God, this hole in me hurts when I cough, but I'm glad I don't have to try and sleep through the night waiting on that wolf girl and her pack to come after me. But did you do like the Indian told you? Did you shoot your dog? No, he shot me. Oh, Grenier said, mixed up and afraid he'd entirely forgotten that part of it. He continued to watch the woods on either side, but that night no spawn of unnatural unions showed herself. For a while the rumors circulated. The sheriff had examined the few witnesses claiming to have seen the creature and had determined them to be frank and sober men. By their accounts, the sheriff judged her to be a female. People feared she'd whelp more hybrid pups, more wolf people, more monsters who eventually logically would attract the lust of the devil himself and bring down over the region all manner of evil influence. The Kootenays, wedded as they were known to be to pagan and superstitious practice, would fall prey completely to Satan. Before the matter ended, only fire and blood would purge the valley. But these were the malicious speculations of idle minds, and when the election season came, the demons of the Silver Standard and the railroad land snatch took their attention, and the mysteries in the hills around the Moye Valley were forgotten for a while. Thanks. Now, I think maybe I have to introduce Chris Offit. Okay. Chris Offit, as you know, is uh, a master of some forms. Now, he's, he's a very gifted prose stylist and uh, author of uh, wonderful nonfiction memoirs, short stories, and at least one novel that I know of. And I think probably those of you who have been hanging around here have uh, been unable to avoid making his acquaintance over the last week. I'm very grateful to be sharing the stage with him for this interview, and we'll also do a reading after that, or question and answer, or something like that. Come on up, please. Christopher John Offit. Dennis, uh, you usually like to start with questions, right? All right, yeah. Are there any questions? (laughs) Can someone tell me the difference between a land mile and a nautical mile. What is the worm what? doing at the bottom of the tequila bottle, the mezcal? Why is it there? Waiting for you. <laughs> okay, so nobody knows. Actually, what I heard was that it was once in a while they'd get in by mistake and it was a, considered good luck. And then they began to put it in every bottle like, you know, it's good luck. <clears throat> yeah, it was a trick question. I did know the answer. You got the question. They repeat. The question is: uh, 
what is it about the playwriting form that's attracting me now or the theater? And at first it was just the thrill of seeing characters come to life. I, I went to a reading of some, that some actors were doing of mine in Los Angeles. Uh, they were reading my material um, at the Met Theater in 1990, something like that. And a couple of them acted out one of the scenes from a novel on the stage. And uh, I was knocked out. I thought it was just wonderful uh, that these characters I'd imagined now were moving around and I could hear what they sounded like. And so I determined that I would write a play, and eventually I did. And when I started getting around uh, people who were producing these things, I became instantly addicted. The, the, in the first place, uh, I'm not alone. And uh, th those of you who are writing fiction or poetry know it's, it's scary and hard to be writing alone. Uh, and it's wonderful to come into a community and we're all concerned with, guess what, what I've written. You know, I mean, I'm dealing with a group of people who have memorized every word I've written. And the, all they want to know is, how do I want it to sound? And it's so hard to go back home and then write a short story or, you know, all by myself, where I can only imagine what the reader must be thinking. You called me completely excited uh, over this and said, it's great, Chris. I just write it and they say it the same day. It's great. I'll never write prose again. Yeah. Well. It's getting harder to write prose. It really is. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a question because writers and craft and process and all that. And a long time ago, I, uh, uh, before I started the novel, I was kind of compelled into it contractually. I went around and asked you and other people like, to show me like, what you all did to write novels. And your way was sort of by accretion, if I recall. You had files with chapters and, and subjects, and then you would put stuff in and type it. And Are you still doing doing that technique, yeah, sort of that's, that's expansion kind of the way from the inside. Yeah, exactly. There, I'll have just, you know, voices and images and so on that begin. I write them on little snips of paper through the day. Next morning I get up. I have all the little pieces of paper, napkins and things like that. I put them in a file, you know, whatever file they seem to go in. At, at the moment I'm supposedly working on a couple of novellas and a novel and a couple of plays. And I'll just look at these things I've written and think, why did that come into my mind? It must belong in one of these places. And then I'll just put it in a file of notes about this particular thing. When the thing gets big enough that I begin to perceive a plot line uh, or you know something along the lines of a plot or story is suggested, then I'll force myself to sit down and kind of outline it. Then I'll make a number of files or folders for each character, maybe, or each part of the plot. And then the notes will begin to go in there. And then and gradually these things just kind of accumulate. It's kind of like cotton candy, you know. Just keep waving the thing around and it gets bigger and bigger. And this is not the fast way to write anything. When do you type it? Um, well, there... They're kind of typed as I go along. So when you say take notes, you don't mean longhand, you mean... No, or... I, I write the notes just little snippets in longhand, and then the rest is typed into a computer. And once in a while I have, and in fact I'm doing this now with a short story, I've taken that computer stuff and then I start, I get a notebook and I start writing it out in longhand Thanks. and making a, uh, 
making a handwritten version of the story, just in order to be more physically involved with the, the piece and to make it go a little more slowly and have it uh, more, you know, palpably and visibly before me while I'm working on the thing. And then it goes back into the computer. And so, you know, the novel I'm working on now was started 20 years ago by this process. And uh, <laughs> I don't... I How think big's that, a file? <laughs> it's getting really big. Uh, Is that why you added that addition to the house? Was for the, just for the file for this <laughs> novel? <laughs> no, it is getting kind of big. But the, the quickest novel I've written was seven or eight years. And then this one I'm working on now, you know, I, I began it before I, before I finished my first published novel, I began the novel I'm working on now. So the, the method I'm describing is for people who think they're going to live a long time, you know, <laughs> and I, I'm really not in a hurry. But Angels, you, uh, did you write Angels in the same, with the same process? Yeah, I did, and that, that, was, uh, that took 12 years. Angels did? Yes, it did. I also heard a rumor, and maybe it was one of these great literary legends, um, that, that Jesus' son, the stories were written, you wrote them on a giant piece of poster board so that you could see all of the prose at once. That, that, sounds, that sounds like a conflation of two, two true stories. A conflation? Con, yeah, conflation means two things coming together. Uh, this is how I we think. met. Dennis, I think, you. yeah, I met him at the dictionary. We were fighting over the dictionary in the library. We were looking up the dirty words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Bangkok. A conflation may be a dirty word. I don't know. Assassin, my all time favorite, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> so, anyhow, what were the conflations? Okay, of two? The, the true, the one true thing is, uh, that, that I, at that time, I was, I had a big typewriter. Thing. And I was writing on 17 by 11 post, not poster board, but newsprint, so that I could get a lot of words on the page before I had to change uh, pages. This was before I uh, had a computer or before I was using one very, very uh, comfortably. And, and so, yeah, the, there were like three of the Jesus Son stories went onto one piece of paper. Uh, and I still have it. I folded it up and I like put it in my pocket. And years later, I found it. I still have it, and it's got like three or two and a half of them all. So that's a conflation. What's the other half? And the other half is that when I was at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, I made the acquaintance of a number of artists, and I was very impressed that when I went to their studios, I would see what they were working on in process as I entered the room. And I felt, you know, wow, these people are naked. They, they can't hide what they're doing. And... So then I went back to my, uh, my little studio and I started writing poems on big pieces of paper and poster board and stuff with real big letters and putting them on the wall to work on them so that people would, so that I would have to experience that nakedness too. Did you invite people in so you could like expose yourself? So I could take off my clothes. Yeah. No, if they came over, they could see what I was working on, just like an artist. Did you ever work naked? Like take your clothes off to write? One of my... One one of my mottos. My motto is, <laughs> write naked, write from exile, write with blood. And that, that's my motto. And write naked means not literally with your clothes off, uh, but to try to try and have that feeling that I am completely exposed. That, what What are you uh, in exile from? And to write in exile means to write about this world as if we had been removed. 
and we can only cherish it by remembering its details and you know by being as loving and as careful in that process as we can and to write with blood means to write as if every word were coming you know as if we were going to run out of life or the stuff we're writing with at the same time and very quickly and so we have to be very careful with the the use of it that shut him up didn't it <laughs> that's the first time all week god usually i hear shut up chris <laughs> I, I like that idea, but there was a third one, right? With from exile, right? right. With blood. What was the other one? Right, right, naked, right, naked, right. Naked. Naked. Yeah. yeah. So you do write naked. Yes. Uh, is that a, we have a question in the back? The question was, what is it about the novel I started 20 years ago that's caused me to pick it up again or to have kept it the whole time? And that 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 question is one that interests me a lot. Um, <laughs> long ago, somebody gave me a like an interview uh, printed uh, with Marcel Duchamp. And the only thing I remember from this interview was something that impressed me a lot. He, he talked about the necessity of preserving the initial impulse of a work through its entire creation. And he didn't know, well, I'm just not able to remember exactly what he said about it, but it seems to me now that he didn't know what to say about that or how it might be done. And I've considered myself very fortunate uh, that the initial impulse that gives rise to one of these things seems to resonate, just seems to continue over long, 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 long periods of time until the thing is done. And uh, I've noticed another curious thing, that while I'm working on something, the little experiences from my own life that I'm using that, that I borrow to put in the thing are very clear to me and they're very vivid in my memory. And then after the work is finished, I don't remember that part of my life at all. I can't recall those things anymore. It's as if they've been held in memory and held in memory and then they don't need to be there anymore. I'm actually very fascinated with the workings of my own head. You know, this, I think, is you know, not uncommon with writers and other people who spend long periods of time by themselves in rooms, you know, putting the contents of their head before them. But it, what fascinates it, you the most about the workings of your own head, Dennis? <laughs> well, that's, that's it. What, what, why are these images there? You know, why do they stay? I had a wonderful thing happen once where in this Jesus Son story, there's mention made of uh, a Volkswagen, a green Volkswagen, which I, was actually based on a Volkswagen I had owned. And I spent time in this Volkswagen. I owned it. I, I drove it. I, I actually painted it green myself with spray paint from the uh, hardware store. And uh, then years later, when people were making a film based on this book, I went out to watch what they were doing. And uh, there, beside this farmhouse in, uh, I believe it was New Jersey, they had... Uh, they were setting up the shot, and I got out of this car, and I walked up, and here was this green Volkswagen. It could have been exactly that Volkswagen. It might have been the same one. I don't know. And I thought, now, I had this Volkswagen. Then it became only an image, and now it's real again. And it, it began to seem to me that there are images, like maybe thoughts that God is having or something, that we get to have for a while and they change shape and they persist on their own 
And it's just our privilege to sort of participate in the life of them. But it's, they are the things that have the life, and we are, we're only borrowing some of that life while, while we live and die. And well, when you're writing, are you really aware enough of... That's enough to say about well, that. When you, well, maybe, but it's, <laughs> when you write, but you're also creating life. Right? Are you breathing life into into these people? I mean, yeah, does but that's that make just you metaphoric? You know, I mean, I think, you know, but even the people, you know, the like when I when I met the young actors who were uh, playing in that film, they came out of this farmhouse and they came toward me, and I thought, God, these are just the punks I used to hang around with. Here they are again, wearing the same clothes and they've got the same dopey expressions on their faces. Only they've been practicing them. You know, and these are actually intelligent, you know, accomplished, talented young people, not really like the people we were. But they have, you know, schooled themselves to be like we were. It's, it's all very bizarre and, you know, probably doesn't bear too much thinking about, really. Is that the Volkswagen where the guy dies on the way to the hospital? Right? Yes, yes. And I, I'd, I'd like to quote my favorite line from that book, Ed, perhaps my favorite of the many favorites. So the guy dies in the backseat and... And uh, this, the narrator's driving. Somebody says, he's dead. They're on the way to the, the hospital. And, he, and the narrator says, I'm glad he's dead. He's the one started everybody calling me fuckhead. <laughs> and the very next line is, and then I passed out. <laughs> oh, then I fell asleep. I was like, whoa. I read that and thought, geez, um, our friendship's over. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> Question? Any, any other questions? questions? Okay, one more question, and then we'll get on to some more fun and games. Yeah. Okay. There were two questions, and I, can, I get to choose one. Uh, what was I'll answer the other one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you probably can, too. What was my relation to the, pr the prison in Arizona where some of the uh, action of the novel Angels takes place? Uh, and I, I was teaching uh, on Saturdays a two-hour creative writing course in the medium security part of that prison. So I met, naturally, a few prisoners there, and uh, they shared their stories with me, and I was fascinated with that. A couple of them had been on death row and then had their sentences commuted to life and then gradually worked their way into the medium security part of the population. Um, and they shared their experiences, their death row experiences with me. One of them, Robert Smith, later wrote me a long letter. When I told him I was writing a book about that had some death row stuff in it. He wrote me a long letter in which he detailed as much as he could remember about his experiences uh, living on death row. And I had one other experience there that was very important. Part of the training of the teachers was just to go through the guard training, just the first part of it. So there were three or four days of the guards training that we teachers went through, and that involved orienting us to the prison, among other things. And... Uh, that included a visit to the death house where the gas chamber was. And when we went in there, the uh, teacher, the, our instructor, the head guard who was taking us through, asked us if anybody wanted to go into the gas chamber and, and be seated. And uh, so I agreed to do it. And I went in and he shut the thing. And, you know, he strapped me in, closed the gas chamber and uh, spun the wheel to tighten the, screw the door down. And so I got to have that experience, and it was very important, as you might imagine, because I could see the, on the, the straps that they were all, people had been sweating into these straps. You could see all the, where all the sweat had soaked in. 
and uh, there was a, the end of a stethoscope coming in real, uh, that would attach to the person's, the victim's chest. And then there were rabbit ears coming out the door on the other side. Those are the two things, two details that really kind of got to me. But uh, anyway, I think that answers the question. And I don't know, maybe Chris can tell you why I went to North Idaho. Shall I answer it as you or just answer it? <laughs> yeah, uh, answer it as me. Well, <laughs> when, Angel, when I sold Angels to the Hollywood, uh, it was for a flat uh, fee, and North Idaho was the only place that I could afford a, a house. That's that, true. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Actually, well, I could have afforded a house anywhere. I had a check for $90,000 in my hand. I'd never had that much money before. And uh, then I sat down and I wrote three checks to people I owed money to. <laughs> I had nothing left except for a couple thousand, and North Idaho was the only place where I could, you know. And that movie was never made, incidentally. Um, um, you know, the, order, the sequence of your books, uh, didn't Resuscitation of a Hangman was the third one, but it was actually the first, or wasn't it published? Didn't you write it prior? It was published, uh, you know what I'm saying? Can yeah. somebody answer this question? Well, they all they get started at different times and finished at different times, but they they were published in the order that they were finished, but not begun. So exactly. by this, so do you start new novels? I mean, why would you start a new novel at this point? They take twenty years. <laughs> I'm gonna live a long time, man. And that, now I just call them novelinas. <laughs> you know. so they're not gonna take that long. It's gonna be do you have other ones going? Just novellas. No, not, a, not any more novels. Why novellas? Because they're shorter and, uh, you know, well, maybe, I am winding down. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to retire and write nothing but verse plays. Maybe haiku. So, you could just... Haiku plays, yeah. <laughs> any more questions? One more question for Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> and the question was... The, yeah, I... I did write one novel that's a post-apocalyptic kind of science fiction thing. Um, and that came from, well, when I was in high school, I read a lot of uh, science fiction, and I was always interested in, particularly in the post-apocalyptic stuff. And uh, I just gradually imagined this thing without ever writing it down. I mean, that, that one I did start imagining when I was in high school. So a lot of it had accumulated, and I started writing it down, and yet... Part of me was no longer interested in science fiction. The mythologizing of that story did interest me. The kind of primitive ritual uh, spirituality that the characters get into. But if you've read it, anybody who's read it will notice it does have a lot of current era stuff in it. There's a whole section on Vietnam, the Vietnam War and so on. So it was, and it probably should have been two books. And in fact, the novel I'm working on now that has been going on for so long concerns some of the characters uh, from that book in the Vietnam part. It's, it all, it's all mixed up. Can you discuss some of your experiences um, in the semiotics department of Brown? <laughs> Speaking of plays, you know, uh, why don't we, let's, let's read that play. We'll take a little break. We've been sitting around here for a long time, and I know those seats are hard. I was sitting in one this Dennis afternoon. Johnson. So. Yeah. But, but come back in, in six minutes. That's how long it takes to smoke one cigarette. And then we'll read this play. And 
hear Charlie in the back? Charlie, move, move closer. Testing, testing. How's that? One, two, three. Better. Okay. Okay. Before we start, I'd like to thank Lee Montgomery. <laughs> Lee Montgomery. <laughs> Lee. Lee. This is the final, final, no final more, event. No more thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> this is the final event for the Tin House Reading Festival, their first one, and it's been a great experience, I think, for everybody. Thank yeah. you. Thank you to the interns and all the staff. And thanks, Wynn. Okay. And <laughs> thanks, Dennis. Th thanks to those of you who've come back. Thanks, Dennis. To hear the, uh, the first scene of this play, Psychos Never Dream. Uh, there are four characters in the play, but only two are in this scene, which is the opening scene. Uh, Charlie D'Ambrosio, uh, world-famous novelist and essayist, is uh, or story writer. Short story writer. <laughs> but he'll, you know, he's like the rest of us. He'll end up writing a novel, too. 20-year uh, novel. Yeah. He is going to help us out by reading the stage directions. As I think I indicated when I was reading that uh, piece of uh, fiction, the action <laughs> takes place along Meadow Creek Road, also known as the Moy River Road, uh, in... Uh, the backwoods of North Idaho, about 10 miles from the Canadian border, in the late 1990s, right around our time now. Here we go? Yes. Psychos never dream. Critter, backwoods hippie, late 40s. Floyd, a little straighter, late 40s. <laughs> Woods behind a rural cabin, nighttime. Critter stands up to his hips in a pit, digging with a spade as fast as stealth will allow. Floyd stands some steps away, watching. He holds a lantern, but it isn't lit. Critter shovels rhythmically. Send up to the massa, I'm gonna strike the blow. <clears throat> Send up to the massa, I'm gonna strike the blow. <clears throat> I'm gonna strike the blow, I'm gonna bust my chains and run away to Timbuktu. <clears throat> I'm gonna bust my chains and run away to Timbuktu. I'm going to bust my chains and run away to Timbuktu. And when you catch this monkey, Massa, I'm going to be as rich as you. <clears throat> I'm going to bust my chains and run away to Timbuk3. I'm going to bust my chains <clears throat> and run away to Timbuk3. And when this monkey catch you, Master, you're going to be as poor as me. I'm going to bust my chains and run away to Timbuk4. <clears throat> Done digging, Critter climbs out from the hole. I'm going to bust my chains and run away to Timbuk4. I killed you and... Bends down and, obscured by the dirt pile, grunts and groans. A muffled wump. I'm going to kill your whore. I killed you and I'll kill your whore. He comes around this side of the dirt pile, leans on his shovel, panting. His breath slows. He sets the shovel down. He's staring into the grave. Reaches into his back pocket, extracts a can of skull... Wipes his fingers in his armpit, opens the lid, takes a pinch, and shoves it into his mouth. Taking a break? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jesus God. Holy mother. Jumping Jehoshaphat, Jiminy Cricket, huh? Great Caesar's God ghost. Goddamn Floyd. Goddamn Floyd. You could have been a ghost. Could still be. Ah, uh, yeah. Good evening, Critter. I understood you to be in Coeur d'Alene. I'm thinking otherwise. I heard Fred of Bear Mechanical say old Floyd Wells would be dropping off a drive shaft for him down in CDA. Took it, left it, came back. I see. I think I had the timing of all this sort of misconstrued or something. So what are you doing in my yard? 
What am I doing in your yard? Is that all you got to say? Is that the best you can do to repeat what I just said, which is what are you doing in my yard? Because you've had a goddamn good long time to think of a better answer than that or some kind of answer because that ain't no answer at all. So what am I doing in your yard? No, you're not asking me. I'm asking you. It's my yard and it's my question and you get to be the answer. Man. Well, I got an answer. I got a hell of an answer for you. I'm waiting. Yeah, all right. Uh, what do you think this is? That's a question. Yep, it's a question I'm asking. It's a shovel. That's right, that's right. And what do you think is done with it? Well, I wouldn't know because it ain't my shovel. No, but I bet you got one just like it. What's that supposed to mean? I remember when your wife left you, or supposedly left you, what, seven kids? Wasn't she a mail-order bride? I mean, I'm not surprised she left you, but how did you ever get a wife in the first place? Okay, by mail order. She arrived by mail, but why did she stay so long? Oh, yeah, a shovel. And what does one do with it? Does one? One does dig in the dirt. Right enough. One being you. Among others? Floyd lights the lamp. You want some light? No. Floyd leaves it dim, sets it down. I guess if you're digging in the dark, you're digging in the dark. Was there anybody actually to see her and witness her leaving you? Her and all them kids? Actually physically going away? Or were they just gone one day and we kind of take your word on this sudden departure. I can just about see a corpse in this dungeon. I'm making out the face of, who is it? Who does it look like? I can just about make out his face. Give me that lamp. You don't need a lamp. Then why am I asking for it? Critter hands in the lamp. Jesus Christ. I've dreamed and dreamed and dreamed of killing him. For years I've dreamed it every possible way. It's Ken Hubbard. Holy moly. Shooting him, stabbing him, poisoning his beer, gutting him with a chainsaw, dragging him along behind the truck, sometimes planning, sometimes just enjoying the fun of dreaming, the savage pictures of entertainment. You know what? TV isn't violent enough. You should see the rating on my mind. And what did you actually do to this poor son of a bitch? Everybody complains about TV being too violent. You know what? They should have worried about what was going on in here. Oh, hubby. You know what? I don't even own a television. He's your uncle, isn't he? He's got about two years on me. I will be catching up with you, though, won't I? Are you done with your shit, you son of a bitch? Or is there something else you'd like to pull? He says, come on down to the house. Nobody's home. I'm going to show you how I do it to the ladies. Nobody home, like he says. House is quiet as death on Sunday. In fact, it was Sunday. His parents were at church. I thought his parents died years ago. This was years ago, about 16, or I was 16. Okay, I get you. He opens up the living room couch and he says, come on now, hide in the fireplace. I'm hiding in there, breathing that soot till my lungs is black and along up the drive comes this girl. He parks her on the hidey bed and she don't even see me. He lifts her skirt and yanks her panties down and tosses them backward right in my face. I didn't like that. I wanted to leave. Why didn't you leave? I wanted to leave. Why didn't you say so? Well, I didn't know how to say. What happened? What do you suppose? You got some sex education. I heard her screaming and sighing and laughing and bawling. I watched the backs of her thighs jiggling for seemed like half an hour without taking myself one breath. Watched hubby's pimply butt gyrating till I just about puked. He was just having fun. He violated my rights. In fact, all right, I actually did puke. I gagged or made some such noise, and she stopped the proceedings and raised her head and said, who's that little boy in the fireplace? 
He said, where? What fireplace? She says, the fireplace, that little boy. He stared right at me and said, there's nobody there. And she said, oh. And they went back to humping like monkeys, and I puked right down my shirt. Because why? Because it happened to be a young lady I recognized from my dreams. A young lady I instantly thought a great deal of as soon as I saw her. But after I watched his runny butt bucking between her jiggly old thighs, I never had the time to talk to her. There you go, you bastard. I never told anyone. But you're telling me. Well, anything can be told here. Hey. Hey what? Hey, he's moving. He's not moving. He moved. He didn't move. I strangled him for five minutes. I shot him, and I strangled him, and I cut his throat. And if you move again, I'm going to cut your head off. I'm just kidding. Whoop. I <laughs> gotcha. Why didn't he kill you with his air? He couldn't kill nobody with his air. He's a championship archer. He ain't no kind of archer. He killed one elk, one single elk, by pure luck back in 19, I don't know when. Then he's never got one since. He can hit a bale of hay and that's it if the light's good and he ain't drunk. Except we put that all in the past tense because he's dead. We say he used to could because he's dead. <laughs> he was a borderline retard, and so are you. Asshole says what? What? <laughs> hear the jet plane going overhead? I don't hear nothing. Stratocruiser, man. Can you just barely hear it? Way up there, way up there, man. Smaller than a star. Nights get so clear and cold here this time of year. That dirt was only frozen two inches down. Nice and soft under that. Funny, Dus. We're in the far, far away, the way up north. To the Canadians, this is the way down south. It's a geographic conundrum. <laughs> what is Ken Hubbard doing in my yard? Well, Hubby figured since he has been killed and is in need of a grave, and Floyd already has a pack of graves right here in this yard, Hubby just figured he'd help himself to the territory. After all, when you get caught, if your graves get dug up by people looking for missing people like your wife and all those children, you'd soak up the blame. None for me. Sorry, but hey. My graves? I saw you burying your whole family out here in two big holes last August. Second week in August, just when you said your wife left and all. Halfway through last August, I saw you digging like China had a hole of your balls. I'm sorry. But I walk up and down this road at night, up and down. I have a terrible lot of trouble sleeping ever since the mercury. I was walking the night. I saw you digging. Of course you saw me digging. If you look at me any old time, 50% of the time when I'm not sleeping, I'm digging. You don't get the treasure until you disturb the earth. You must tickle the great mother. She'll give it up if you tickle her proper. Likely story. True story. You know I'm after the gold. Like everybody is. But have you actually ever found anything? Alaska? I met that guy from Alaska. Used to play cards with him over at the club bar in Troy. He had a mine up there in the Rangel Mountains, southeast of Anchorage. A panning operation. Dug out $1,500 a day. Set his gold on the table by the stove. Walk down the river at sunset and throw in his line. Have his limit in trout and grayling inside of 10 minutes. Grizzlies standing on the bank watching him. Ground no man ever set foot on. No human ever walked on that ground. Gold six inches under the surface, lying there, trembling like a girl. I hitchhiked up there to join him. Old Clifford, totally full of shit. Told me to meet him at the Burger King in Anchorage. 
The Golden Arches. No, that would be the McDonald's, you sorry zit. Well, anyhow, you met him at the Burger King. Turns out there's quite a few Burger Kings in Anchorage. It's a sizable town. Anchorage is quite a large city. I doubt old Clifford ever set foot in it. No gold, though. No gold, just the Golden Arches. No gold, no gold claim, no Clifford, no reason why I should have ever gone there. He was just joking around, see if I'd actually pack extra socks and jockeys and hitchhike 2,000 miles. <laughs> so I did, so go ahead, I'm an idiot. Hitchhiked home that October and there's a draft notice waiting for me. Four years later, I came home from Asia and never have left since. Well, who was it you buried out here? It was your wife and kids, wasn't it? Who'd you bury? It was my two dogs, my two hunting dogs. Oh yeah, well, I don't know, but they were people I saw you burying, not hunting dogs. They were wearing clothes. I wouldn't bury somebody wearing clothes. Too easy to make the identity. They were dogs, and they were naked, just like a dog should be. Is this another thing I misconstrued? They were dogs, and there's no crime in that, and I'm gonna turn you in. Critter attacks Hubby's corpse all over again, destroying it inside the grave with the shovel. Look what you got me into now, you bastard son of a Stop that! You're my god, man. What are you doing? I'm giving him a goddamn good thrubbing. He's dead. Lucky for him. You're mutilating a corpse. It's better than he deserves. He leaps into the grave and manhandles the corpse. You're assaulting a corpse. You're strangling a dead man. I find a calming. <laughs> Strangely calming. Get up out of there. You're sick. You need help. Don't use that kind of tone on me. This ain't therapy. Is it, you stupid-looking, dickless, shit-pants runt? Only one time I saw him looking stupider. Did you hear about that time when a bunch of us boys left off haying one time down at Hanson's place and we all lined up to stand on a stump and love on a cow? <laughs> Old hubby gets his turn, and he's loving on her like a monkey on a motor scooter. I swear he found his mate for eternity. I mean to say he had a vibe working that was just about nuclear powered and then some jackhammer city. Cow is mooing and squirming. There's that plane, the Stratocruiser. <laughs> and then she just shuts up, the cow does, real quiet and squoonches down. Hanson's boy, Nick, old Nick Hanson says, look out, that cow's fixing the shit on you. Hubby says, no she ain't, I'm just getting good to her. Oh, yeah, we all say. Of course you are. Please proceed. That cow squoonches back and give a big old groan and slops about a four-and-a-half-pound pie right down between hubby's ankles, right down onto his undies and breeches and his tennis shoes. His face just turned to tears, and he moans out, Daddy's going to kill me, and flopped off that stump and waddled over and jumped in the river. And it was cold. Jumped right in the cold river. Loving on a cow? You did it too? I never touched one of God's dumb creatures, not even in the hottest moment of my puberty. Britches full of cow shit. I savor the moment. Poor bastard. How could you smoke a poor bastard had that picture in his background? Come on, you must have done it. What about a sheep? You ever get a good one to one of them ewes up at Hubbard's farm? Get good? I never touched one. They were pinned up pretty far from the house. Nice and private. In fact, they still are. We could go on up there right now and teach them the missionary position. I got good to just about anything that presented itself. Everything I looked at, I thought, what about that? Can I get good to that? I got good to my pillow. 
I got good to the toilet paper roll. I did the boogie with the mayonnaise right out of the refrigerator, cold as heck. Everything my eye fell on, I wondered, could I possibly maybe figure out a method for getting good to it? But when it come to God's creatures, I never did a one of them no harm by getting good to it. You got a yard full of bodies here. And you say you left God's creatures alone? Aren't your own wife and children God's creatures? You know, it seems to me this man did one or two boyish things you didn't care for, and you nursed the hurt for 30 years and then killed him. Oh, no. Oh, no, sir. No, sir, Rebob. I killed him for something quite recent. He's lorded it over me since birth, but I held my peace. He locked a gate across my easement and built his fence four yards over the line of my property and never helped me for nothing, never once bought me a beer, but I didn't kill him for that. I never even punched his fat face once or two times or broke his teeth like I should have. But after a lifetime of rolling over me, every time his wheels turned, he finally went too far. Last spring, this son of a bitch, my uncle Ken Hubbard, who's supposed to be my own blood kin, hiked nine miles up Sawyer Mountain to Razorback Ridge, crawled along it in the dead of night for another mile point six to the backside of Spruce Lake to the cliff overlooking it, Rappelled down 300 feet in the skinny light of dawn, swam five-eighths of a mile across the freezing waters of the lake to where it dribbles out into Snyder Creek, and kicked a 10-pound boulder in it. And that's what changed the course of Snyder Creek to where it does not touch my land, which it has crossed and blessed and nourished with its waters since before the first homesteaders came to it, old Snyder himself in 1898, who filed the first claim on the creek and designated it as serving that property, and instead, now it sops over onto Hubbard's land. He dug a pond 10 acre feet, a lake large enough to sink a church in. Stocked it with trout, and every day he walks around the edge with a big old sack, tossing dog food out to those things, and they're growing as fat as Chinese babies, and every drop they drink is theft. Fish don't actually drink. I've seen them. I've seen them drinking, gulping, swallowing my water. I watch him every morning with his sack of kibble and his idiot smile. I've recorded it all on video. I've got videos of those fish drinking water, every one of them drinking, 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 drinking like a fish. <laughs> then he filed for rights. When the water resources put the advertisement in the paper, he come over and stole it out of my mailbox three Thursdays in a row till the ad stopped running. So I never could file a protest. Certificate was signed and sealed and I never had an inkling until I got a copy in the mail from the water board. God, God, God. Change back the flow. You think I'm capable of climbing, crawling, rappelling, swimming? I need a helicopter, boy. And then you can't get out. How'd he get out? Greed and envy and hatred powered him out. That's all I can think of as to how he made it out. That water grab was a superhuman feat of evil. He should get the Congressional Medal of Honor. He put a gate across the easement that crosses his land into mine. He locked it tight. Every time I enter or exit my land, I've got to climb down out of my truck, dig my keys out of my pants, and locate the key on my keychain. Rain or shine, dark of night or broad of day, there's no respite from the task. And fiddle with that padlock and drag that gate open and drive my truck through and climb on all down out of it and lock it up, or else I'll be jailed because he's got an injunction out on me. He locked me in tight. He corralled me in. I struck a blow for freedom. I'd say you struck a damn sight more than just a blow. Looks like he fell off Everest. I told you I made a job of it. Can't tell his head from his feet now. Are you going to jump in and get it good to him? <laughs> Why do they call you Critter? 
Why do they call you Floyd? Why don't you kiss my ass? Why don't you suck my dick? Critter shoves Floyd into the hole and starts frantically shoveling dirt in after him. Floyd pops up, <coughs> sputtering. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, yes, I you do. You don't bury me. Why not? Because I ain't dead. Is that an invitation? Is that a challenge? Critter raises the shovel. Hey, 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 we're cousins. We are not cousins. Second cousins. No, I don't think so. Once removed. What are you, an uh, astrologist? A what? With the family tree there. A genealogist. We ain't cousins. And what does once removed mean? And why do they go around saying, all you genealogists and gynecologists? I don't know. Nobody knows. Once removed. I'm not way down deep into it. I just happen to know that we happen to be second cousins once removed through your mother and my cousin Anselm, who everybody called Elmo. Because they were cousins. Therefore. Therefore, let me up out of this hole and let's be friends. Or at least cousins. Or at least have a truce. We're having a truce. We are? A truce once removed. A truce once I remove your head from your neck with this shovel. No, no, no. Do you know what I have in my pocket here? Uh, you can't buy your way out of this. You're not a feller to go turning down a drink, are you? No. The seal ain't broken. I hoarded it all day. I was going to watch the boxing on the saddle. I can get a little bug on. What's the main card? Gene Jack St. Augustine and some guy named... I can't even pronounce it. I never heard of him. That wily little Jamaican guy and some East European borderline retard. Are you going to share? That's kind of tasty to suck on. Don't be stingy. Wish I had a reefer. Most excellent. I don't know nothing about needles or pellets or left-handed cigarettes. I just know I like a drink. Prohibition's over. Well, we ain't going to be pals. And if I did have a little pot, I wouldn't share. I'd just dip my ash on your head. I always liked old hubby. Yep. Well, that's his face you're standing on right Whoa. now. Whoa. Yep. You've crunched his nose and destroyed his eyeballs and every other damn I thing. I thought it was a rock. It ain't. I thought it was a big old rock. Nope. That's somebody's face. I thought his head was down the other end. This is disgusting. Let me up out of here, Critter, please. Let's negotiate. It's all pointless. We'll figure a way. Once you're out of my sight, I'm in your power. You can snitch me out any time. No, it doesn't work. I'm sorry, headless. You're standing you're in your own grave. We've known each other a long time. We can't help running into each other, that's all. I started out on Burgundy, but soon hit the harder stuff. Everybody said they'd stand behind me when the game got rough. But the joke was on me. There was nobody even there to bluff. I'm going back to New York City. I do believe I've had enough. Listen, Floyd, I'm sorry, but due to this unfortunate misunderstanding about things and due to the stars and the fates and what, what choice do we have here? It's you or it's me. Sometimes it's just nobody's fault. But it's still you or the other guy. You remember Dave Dreesen when he chugged down a half gallon of vodka in less than 10 minutes down by that torn down bridge and he just stopped breathing? And we were all scared that night and tried to cremate him. <sighs> went, up like, went up like a torch. Went up like gunpowder. I peed my pants. I shit my pants. One entire half gallon of Papa vodka in his gut. That fireball roared out of his mouth. Wow. Out of his ears, out of his nostrils, out of... He won the bet, though. No, the bet was eight minutes. Ten minutes. Could he drink it in eight minutes? He won the bet. Well, I'm be goddamn go to hell if I'll ever pay the son of a bitch. Let me up out of this hole. Couple gallons more in that jug of diesel and would never seen any of this nonsense. That there was a load of trouble. Yeah, until Janie Churchill drove off the Moy Bridge. That distracted everybody. That took the heat off, yeah. 
Sometimes I wonder, did she do it on purpose? Of course she did. She was facing a long list of complications, including prison. Her daddy was a terror. Till he killed himself. <laughs> he was grieving for his daughter. I haven't seen too much of you since then. Well, they dragged me off to the war. What about you? Did you get into service? Ah, uh, you know, I'm not the military type. Didn't they draft you? I was too short. From down here, you look tall enough to me. These are custom boots. Custom? How much? Several inches. How much did you pay? Will you stay out of my business? It ain't your house you're standing behind. It ain't your yard you're digging a dungeon in. Go to find out it's my business somebody's in and not the other way around. Yep, that was a real piece of local history when old Churchill cut his own throat at the dinner table. I wish I'd been around for that. At the funeral dinner. What is this, scotch? It was. <laughs> a fucking alcoholic. You got some more? In the house. Go get it. We're rolling. No can do. It wouldn't be strategic. We'll call it a timeout. <laughs> I'll stay right here. I'll stay in the hole. I'd like to believe that. I'm offering my word. Where is it? It's in the freezer, right on top of everything. I won't go back on my word. Critter started shoveling dirt in and around Floyd, working hard. What's the deal, guy? I'm going to trap you. I gave you my word. Ain't a man's word worth half a shit no more? God damn the evil of this age we're living in. Critter sticks the shovel in the mound with a grunt and exits. Left alone and buried up to his waist, Floyd sighs, wipes his face. When you're lost in the rain and war is, and it's Easter time too, and your gravity fails and negativity won't pull you through, dum 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 dum. Sound of ransacking from the house. It's in the freezer, in the freezer, in the freezer. Sound stops. The freezer? God damn, can't you tell booze from burger? If you see St. Annie, please tell her thanks a lot. I cannot move my fingers, they're all in a knot. Critter returns with the bottle. I haven't got the strength to get up and take another shot. And my best friend, my doctor, won't even say what it is I got. Critter sits. They pass the bottle and drink. Yep, you're real skinny and your wife was fat. Have you ever seen Galapagos tortoises fuck? I mean, I felt the appeal. Fat girl in a real short skirt. Real fat girl in a real short skirt. Crow man. You want me to get up and kill you with this shovel? Crow man. It's right. not my name. It's not my name anymore. What? You ain't a hippie no more? At least I didn't wait for the army to get my young ass. At least I had some balls to make a move. Sixteen years old, three candy bars in my pocket and my thumb in the air. Went off and turned into a hippie. I didn't go off and turn into a hippie. I went to Mexico. I went to Hollywood, to San Francisco. And come home with a band of hippies. That's right, come home leading a whole commune. I was the scout that led them here. That was back before you were Critter. No, I was Critter then. Then I adopted my pagan name. And you know, that faded. Crow Man faded. Then I was Critter again. Band of hippies don't know their own names. Took your own funny name, didn't you, Crow Man? You'll always be Ralph to me. Your commune didn't last. Rock and Cloud are Sam and Jenny again, ain't they? I believe, perhaps. I haven't been in touch. Rock works for the highway department, and his name is Sam. Cloud is the dispatcher for the sheriff, and she's Jenny again. The ground was frozen two inches down. 
I'm surprised. It was warm this afternoon. Warm tonight, too. Yeah, warm enough. But it still froze up in the ground. You picked a shady little spot is why. You're all thawed out over there by the porch. <laughs> you ought to know, huh? My wife and kids are up in Saskatchewan, I think. I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. When did he ever go on the road? I helped out around the house. Zappa, the rock and roll dude? There's quite a bit more to his music here than rock and roll. Zappa was totally avant-garde. He had a whole European thing going. He dabbled in the French composers. I'm stunned into silence. I went to Mexico. I went to Hollywood and San Francisco. I was a roadie for the Mothers of Invention. The silence continued. The Mothers of Invention. Zappa's band. You weren't no roadie, never knew him. I worked around the grounds in various capacities. I did various chores. <laughs> You're nuttier than a squirrel turd. When you work for a rocker in any capacity, that makes you a roadie. Yep, your brain is diseased ever since that plague at the commune. It wasn't any plague. It came from the environment. It came from outer space, starring Critter the Madman. From the tailings out of an old mining operation up there. The mercury and the copper and, and the mercury mostly. The mercury and the madness. I know, it was horrible. Have I ever told you that or anybody? Have I ever just sat down and admitted how horrible it was? What you don't understand is you never got better, any of you. You're all just as crazy as you were when the commune broke up. It came from the Black Lagoon. Your system doesn't process out the mercury. Once it's in you, it's in you. It's like a curse. The curse of the mercury madness. It caused you to become psycho. Psycho forever. You've known me since elementary school. Do I seem any different? No. You always have been psycho, come to think. Maybe you got poisoned way back in the time and before the time. Maybe you ate a mercury thermometer in the womb. Everybody said we cooked up a batch of bad acid. We never cooked up any acid. We didn't know how. Any acid we got, somebody had to hitchhike to Seattle and pay for it and hitchhike back. Usually they eat half on the way. We were terrible hippies. We were terrible hippies. After Jim and Janine left, we just went to ruin. Nobody there to keep us in line. It was after they left when we started drawing from the creek. It was too damn far to the spring is why, too damn far and too much steep to climb up there. And anyhow, we were too damn lazy to muck out all the silt from the spring box. Jim and Janine left and the lines froze and broke and the box silted up. We just started drawing from the creek. I could have done a lot of acid and nom. Anything you think of in limitless amounts. You really didn't bury some people here uh, last August while I was walking past? Nope. My dogs got fever and died and I buried them. Dogs with clothes? No. Kind of like Snoopy Dog. He wears clothes. Snoopy don't wear clothes. Sometimes he does. Snoopy don't wear clothes. And neither did my dogs. Nudists, huh? Nudist dogs. I want the warmth and love of the sunshine's cosmic rays. I approve of that. Let us be clothed in sunshine and raindrops, and once in a while a little good old happy dirt. Well, it wouldn't be nothing if I did kill my wife. I've killed a lot of wives, and quite a large number of children, and been decorated for it. But killing and burying an American family, it wouldn't be exactly the same. I mean, for one thing, over there I never bothered with burying anybody. I don't care what you say about God's creatures or the brotherhood or what. They're not entirely human. They're very close, but not all the way. 
raping and pillaging, torching hooches, slaughtering elephants, actual elephants with a 50 caliber machine gun, actual elephants. Raindrops keep falling on my head. <sighs> well, the water's all mine, ain't it, asshole? <laughs> Plus, you're servicing his wife. That red-headed sow he shares a bed with? The very one. Red? She's crazy. Maybe that's what calls to you. Crazy in the head, crazy in the bed. Everybody knows about it. Nothing to know. Everybody. Seems like you used to take her down by the river back in the day. I don't recall. I guess you didn't take her down there to drown her, did you? Elsewise, she'd be drowned. Red wasn't so crazy and ugly back in the day. Ain't it the truth? Back in the day, even I could tell my face from my ass. Well, somebody's doing her. Yeah? Somebody besides old hubby. How do you know? I've heard she sneaks down the road in that putt-putt four-wheeler of theirs just as soon as hubby goes off to town. He don't make it five miles past McDougal Bridge before a crazy old Red goes scooting along down in the same direction on an errand of grace. Well, mercy. you know damn well I live right up behind him on that mountain. If it's me she wants, she could just walk on up. Would you do her? Okay, Red's ugly and she's crazy. But you can stare at a person and see their young, original self. Otherwise, nobody would stay wrapped up with anybody else past the point of a few wrinkles. Stars and celebrities don't realize this. They're always having themselves surgically removed. You got the hots for her. Yeah, I saw old hubby banging away on that cherry from L.A. It was red. 16 years old, puking in the fireplace. She was the one you were in love with. Not true. When did your incident happen? I don't know. Along about when we were still kids. How old? Fuck off. About 16, about two days before you left? I'd never be talking about this if you weren't standing in your own grave. You loved Red Hubbard. I wasn't in love with her, really. I never saw her before that day. You fell in love with her at that moment, plunged headlong. I was a slip of a boy. You left town. Puke on my shirt and snot on my face and my thumb in the air. What a whore of Babylon. Fucking on a Sunday. I bet she hollered. Screamed like a sound shoot. Yeah, man, I bet she, come on, baby. Come on, baby. Rocking and rolling. Howling and writhing and slinging Do slobber. it, you old. Do it, you big. Do it, you. Come on, you. Come on, you. Come on, you big critter. You big critter. You big critter. You big critter. What? I didn't catch that. I think you said critter. Come on, you big critter. Critter, oh, you critter, oh, come on, you big critter. So maybe you felt she was calling to you. No. She was meant to be. No. They didn't call me Critter that's, then. That's why you took the name. Bullshit, I took the name. That name was Give Me. The name was laid on me by Frank Zappa. By none other than Frank Zappa. Red bullshit is unending. Hogwash, bullshit, and jive. Critter wangs him with the flat of the shovel. God! Whoa! That makes your ears ring. Critter wangs him again. That starts a ringing in your head. I'll knock your head off. That'll stop the ringing. Yeah? Wham with the flat of the shovel over and over. Ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong. Floyd disappears behind the mound. Critter peers down. What are you guys up to down in there? Getting good to each other? <laughs> he flings away the shovel, retrieves the bottle, kills the last few drops. Jesus Christ, hubby. 
Now look what you made me do. Look what you've brought about. Take a look. Behold the position you forced me into. I've had to take this guy down, old Floyd. This wasn't his fault at all. Even dead, you keep right on working your bullshit. The evil of you just keeps percolating down and through the universe to hell. Evil, contamination, percolation. He strips down naked as he raves. Kenneth Hubbard, I call on you on the other side to watch me now. See what I do. See how I answer your evil with evil. Watch me walk the road from here to your house. I'm going to strip down naked and slaughter your sheep and bathe myself in their blood. And painted with the gore of your stock, I'll march into your bedroom and gut the sow you've cleaved to your bosom these last 20 years. Then I'm going to take your prize compound bow and arrows and shoot your horses. Then I'm going to dynamite your pond and wash myself clean in the flood of the last thing you prized, of the very waters you stole from my inheritance. Then I'll drag your sow's corpse back here to couple with you in the grave, along with Floyd, of course. Which I feel bad about, which I consider an unavoidable mistake. But anyhow, he killed some people over in Nam, so it's justice, a little backwoods karmic retribution. See how I answer your evil un with evil until the end of time. Critter exits, howling. Pause. <laughs> Floyd rises up. He hauls himself out of the grave, stands himself upright, reeling. I've stood on a few dead faces in my day, dead faces I made dead for the doubtful sake of someone else's chicken shit and bubblegum idea of freedom. But I just wanted freedom to hunt for gold, and I came back a prisoner of the screaming nightmares war impresses on your teenage brain. Critter, I'll make you eat your karma. You killed my jug and left me nothing to cut the dust of the grave. Blackout. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Dennis Johnson. Christopher John Hoppett. And Charlie D'Ambrosio. <laughs> recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards to choose from, including the bonus audio archive, which includes readings, craft talks, long-form conversations with translators and more, or the Tin House Early Readership subscription, 
getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Pass Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins for making the intro and the outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, and her film at aliciajo.com, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. 